everybody. Welcome to another episode of Novel Black Girl. It's your girl, Vanika Renee. I'm here with three lit chicks. Say hello to the people. Hey, y'all. It's Alana. What's going on, people? It's your girl, Roslyn. And I am so excited because today we have a special guest joining us. We have the wonderful Miss Nicole D. Vick with her wonderful book called Pushing Through, Finding the Light in Every Lesson. Welcome, Nicole. So glad you could join us. Thank you so much. I am so excited to be here. I feel like I'm sitting with my cousins and like, yeah, you know, about to eat and like hang out. So I'm Just excited. Tea. Yes, we need to start having wine during this. <laughs> yes. That's the vibes we're on. <laughs> well, Nicole has published her, this is your first book, correct? Yes, my very first book, my very first baby. Congratulations. Love it. Her first book called Pushing Through. It is such an inspirational book for those of you who have not read it yet. Um, but I'd love to just start by you just giving an overview of this book for our listeners who may be interested in still picking up a copy of their own. What's this book about and why did you write it and who's it for? Well, first and foremost, I will say that I am a black woman. Y'all can't see me. Well, you can see me, but y'all that's listening can't see me. Um, I am a South Central Los Angeles resident, born, raised, live here, will probably die here. Um, and this book is really about my journey into social justice work and public health work. And if you have not been living under a rock, you know that public health and social justice is like top of everyone's mind, even right now, right? We're going through the pandemic, um, heading into year two of this of this thing and um, all this other stuff that's been happening, George Floyd's death. Um, Ahmaud Aubrey's trial is happening. Um, and so all of these things are things that I care deeply about and work on every day. And so the book is really about my story, all the things that have happened to me in my life that led me on this path to where I am. And it's really also sort of an inspirational, you know, you can do this too. You can make change in your community. You don't have to wait for permission or, you know, to have all these degrees in front of you to be able to do anything, right? So it's sort of a, hey, this is what happened to me to get me where I am. And you can make change in your community without waiting for somebody to tell you to go ahead and do something. I absolutely love that. I would say the three of us are also in social justice work in some way, shape, or form in our current careers as well. So that definitely resonates um, with me um, in particular. I can't speak for the other two ladies. Yeah, Raj, you have your master's in public health, right? Woo-woo! Yes, so I actually work at uh, where I live, the county public health department. Mm -hmm. Because so, I work for a county health department here in Los Angeles. I'm not going to yeah. name it, though. You, you can figure it out. Yeah, neither am I, because, you know, <laughs> it's I don't want them coming for me. I want no problem. Yeah. But. <laughs> There's only three. And then you are a professor, and she's a professor. Alana's a professor. What? And then I'm in education. So, all distant cousins. Awesome. See, I, to I, I told y'all I knew it. I knew it. Family reunion vibes happening. <laughs> so through the book, you take us basically on your life's journey. And I'm sure there are so many things you didn't even put in this book that we're missing out on as the reader. Um, but one of the things that really stood out to me, and I'm going to actually read it from the book. You said um, about your childhood that you existed in a strange duality, removed from all the realities of living in South Central, 
while your grands and great grands were alive. Um, and you talk about growing up in this middle class family. You weren't necessarily like deep in the hood. You were on the outskirts. Um, just kind of shed light on how that impacted your upbringing. It was it was an interesting thing for me. And thinking back, I'm actually grateful that I was shielded from a lot of that because I do have friends that have lived through it and been in it. Um, and I, you know, hear about the things that they've gone through. And so in some ways I'm like, thankfully I was like the only child for, you know, a good while. And I had my great grandparents and grandparents around and I'm just grateful for that shield, but also mindful that everybody did not get that same opportunity and that same chance to have that layer of protection over them. Um, and you know, it shouldn't be that, that way where children have to be forced to live through violence and trauma. Um, but I, I can't sit here and act like I'm not grateful for that, that, that covering, you know, we talk about covering a lot, you know, in our community, like folks was covering me um, and really grateful for that in a lot of ways. Um, and it definitely set me on a trajectory for um, where I am today. Absolutely. It did. Yeah. That resonated with me because as a girl from Harlem, I felt very similar in that experience. Like I lived in the thick of it all. New York is just a melting pot, right? So I was across the street from projects, but I didn't live in the projects. Mm -hmm. And then going to the small private schools that I went to and the extracurricular, that kind of kept me covered in my bubble. Um, but it is a duality of like, yeah, I'm from Harlem, thick in the hood of Harlem, but I didn't have a hood experience growing up. Like, <laughs> how <laughs> not explain <laughs> Um, so that definitely resonated. Alana Roz, does that stand out for you all as well? Yeah, for sure. So I lived in the hood, but where I grew up, it, the hood ain't the same as what it would be in South Central LA or Harlem, right? And so I was in it, but also very removed from it. Like I come from a two parent household, and like both of my parents are well educated. And so I had this covering, right? Um, so that even though I was in the middle of like there are police shootings next door and all like high speed chases down the street through the neighborhood, like we were still very removed from, well, I was very removed from all of it. And so I definitely understood what that was like to feel like you're from this place, but you're not the same as the rest of the people you grew up in that place. Right. Absolutely. And I think, again, it just reminds us that, wait a minute, why is our communities or are our communities and our societies designed this way? And I think that's probably why all of you are in social justice and public health work, because you're like, wait a minute, why, you know, what, why are our neighborhoods like this? And I don't know about y'all here in Los Angeles County, you know, we got the hood, South Central LA, we have the Latino hood, East LA, but then you go to the West side, baby, it's a whole different type of, you know, like you on a whole nother planet. And then you're really starting to question like, well, why the West side look like it does with all this fancy stuff? And how come we got this over here? And it makes you really think about what is really driving all of this? Why are these things the way they are? And I don't know about y'all, but the minute you realize that that's not an accident, that that is by design, and there are people that are intentionally creating these types of scenarios where people are struggling and without, and then the other folks is on the other side, like they on a whole nother planet. It's like, you know what? It's like, it's like constant anger. Like, what in the world and how do we fix this how do we change this and that's something that I've been thinking about for the last 20 years and I, I, I wish somebody could help me figure it out because I don't know 
Yeah, I was about to say, you almost have to find your role and what impact and change you're going to make, right? Because we can't change it all. There's so many layers to it. So like for me, I change it by impacting education, but that's just one tiny piece of the puzzle. It's such a daunting question. Like there's no one way to change it all because there's so many levels to this. It goes deep. Deep. And you're right. I mean, I was talking, I'm in school right now, y'all. I'm crazy. I'm going back to school. And the professor was saying that he said, if you say it's white supremacy or you say it's, you know, a social injustice, it sounds so big. You feel like, well, oh, well, it's, it is what it is. But you, like you just said, you got to kind of hone it down. What's your lane? What are you going to do? And just tackle exactly. that. Then that way you can at least feel like you done did something. <laughs> yes. And you talked about one of the things that stood out to me was even your relationship with food and how your community had access or lack thereof. To food. So you talked about like your supermarkets look in a certain way or what's easily accessible to you was the side of fries and not a side salad. Um, And so you created this unhealthy relationship with food. Talk to us about your experience with that just growing up where you grew up. Well, you know, um, again, going back to this conversation of why is my neighborhood like this? Is this an accident or is this by design? When you learn and realize, dang, you know, in, in the hood, they'll tear down a grocery store or close a grocery store for uh, real quick. Um, I can give you some examples about just even in recent history where a grocery store, a major grocery store has closed. Like, I don't know if that's something that I've ever, you know, like who closes a, a, a food source in, a, in the middle of a pandemic in an urban area full of black and brown people. So there's a Ralph's like walking distance from me and, you know, Ralph's is owned by Kroger. And I think all of us, at least in my community, have this love hate relationship with Kroger leaning more toward hate. Um, but when our city council said, let's give hero pay to the grocery store clerks that are literally putting their lives in danger, bringing up your dang on groceries during a pandemic, can we give them hero pay? Kroger was like, hmm, we just going to close these stores. And so it's just, again, an example of, where are we getting access to food? But then when you yeah. cross over to the West side, it's grocery stores right next door to each other. It, you know, <laughs> you got all this access to food. Um, In my, in the hood, there's a, a grocery store that got closed. They turned it to a Ross dress for less on the West side. They'll close a Ross dress for less and make it a grocery store. Like, what are we yep. doing? And there is always a liquor store. Always. All time. In the second neighborhood I grew up in, we had two grocery stores when I was a kid. And then, of course, like a pawn shop, your liquor stores, your beauty supply, whatever, all of that. The only thing still open, the liquor store, pawn shop, and the beauty supply. The, they've tore the buildings down of the, the grocery store. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. crazy. That is absolutely insane. And I think about like the students, like you mentioned in your book, the things you see around you and you have access to. Now we have so many obese babies in these schools. They already don't go outside as much because of technology and social media, et cetera. But now they are just inhaling all the unhealthy things. And one of the things you mentioned was like the emotional eating that you were doing and didn't even realize that. And I think about all the things that kids go through with the bullying. They have new levels of bullying with social media now. And so they're just eating and eating all the terrible foods that just have unhealthy relationships with foods. And you talk about your mom and 
like she's trying to support you with making you drink the slim fast but like that is a real struggle in our community yeah i mean i don't even remember i wish i could remember i'm like did i ask her did i to tell did i tell her i wanted to try to lose weight at that young age and or or was this something that i just came home one day and the damn slim fast was there but the interesting <laughs> part about that is like you know the, the marketing you know that whole diet culture um, oh, yeah. in this country is huge and so i maybe i saw the slim fast on the shelf or i saw a commercial and thought oh i'm chubby let me you know do something about it and my mom of course is also overweight and she grew up you know being teased so she felt like she was helping me you know um yeah. and and thought well let me give her you know something to help her out but it really was part of this this long history of trying to struggle with food fighting myself fighting my body and i literally just had to say this is just enough i mean yeah. i only got one body and I'm, I'm over here denying myself food eating weird food combos doing all this weird stuff and it just didn't make any sense and i have friends that are in the body positivity movement and and really working hard to unravel that diet culture, especially for black women. We got so much on our plates. Can we, you know, give ourselves some grace about what we put in our mouths, especially mm -hmm. to your point in communities where, um, where are we supposed to be getting this kale from and where are we supposed to be getting this mm -hmm. organic, whatever the heck it is and who got the money to pay for any of it. Right. So it's just so many layers of things. And I think that's the, the lesson too in, in our communities. Like it ain't just this one thing. It's layers. It's the food. It's the violence. It's the lack of resources. It's the bad schools. It's just all this stuff compounded on top of each other that really creates this perfect storm of um, inequality, inequity, and lack of resources. And it just keeps going. It just this the cycle that we're stuck in on purpose. Do you feel like you tackled parenthood in a different way when it came to showing your daughter how to take care of her body and love herself? Like, what are some of the ways that impacted you as a parent? Absolutely. Um, I just remember that scrutiny as a child, you know, about my weight, um, how embarrassing it was to not be able to fit the, I went to parochial school, right? So the school uniforms, I'm having to wear the school uniforms of kids in junior high school because I'm chubby, right? And back then, they didn't have all these cute, you know, plus size clothes. Y'all, you know, the plus size world has really grown and expanded now. You can get all kind of cute stuff. They didn't have all that. I was wearing clothes out the Sears catalog for grown people looking crazy. <laughs> so when I had my daughter as a teen mom, I was still 17, 18 years old. Um, I decided I was like, we not, we not doing this. We not playing this game with her about her body. We not, we not. So there was no negative messaging from me. Now, I don't know if it came from anybody else. I did the best I could to keep that away from her. But I was really intentional about we're not going to have these kind of conversations about her body and what she needs to do and what she needs to look like and all whatever. Um, so really intentional for me to make sure that that wasn't part of my conversations to her because yeah. I knew how important it was um, to have those messages come from me as a another black plus size woman and how damaging negative messages could be to her. And I was like, I'm not doing that. Yeah. How did you get there? How did you get to this place for the woman who's listening right now? And they're still deep in the trenches trying to learn to love themselves. What did your journey look like? What are some of the steps they can start to take to get there where you are now? You got to put the food, you got to not put the food down. Let me, that's not what I meant to say. Got to throw the scale away. <laughs> I think that's what one of the things I did. I threw the scale away. 
Um, and I think also it was just literally living and, and going through these things and realizing this don't make no sense. This don't make no sense. Everybody else is eating normally at this party and I got to eat a boiled egg and, and I don't know. And it's like, that doesn't make sense. That is not living. That is not being a, a free and open person. If you want to eat the mac and cheese, eat the mac and cheese, right? Don't assign value to food. It's food. Um, and and you just got to do what you got to do and make the best decisions that you can. But I can say for me, it really was literally having to go through it. And sometimes you got to go through it to get to it, right? Like, and realize this don't make no sense that I'm doing this to myself. For what reason? The studies show that diets don't work. You you get yourself in this weird headspace. You're 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 eating disordered, right? You're eating these weird food combinations to do what? Um, and it's just I don't know. I, I I really can't even say like one thing. It was just a journey. Yeah. It was a a series of things that really got me to like, girl, I I can't do this no more. Give me my Oreos. Yeah. I, I can't. <laughs> How'd you, how'd you come to this decision to be vegan? Cause you're vegan now, right? Yeah. So how'd you come to that decision? Like from all of this growing up to now you're vegan. So, um, I, again, working in public health at this local health department that will not be named. Um, I actually worked in South Los Angeles. Wonderful. Got to work in my own community. There was a, my boss was a black woman. She was in her, probably her sixties by then. And then there was a nurse manager, also a black woman around the same age. They were both vegan or vegetarian, vegetarian, vegan. They were like, oh, yeah, I went jogging this morning. And, you know, oh, I do this and I do that. And I had never seen black women of that age, mm -hmm. that active. Um, and I was kind of like, what are they like? What is this? I don't understand. And one of them was vegetarian or vegan due to her religion, Seventh-day Adventist. So mm -hmm. I was like, well let me see what this is like. I'm going to stop eating chicken. I think chicken was like the last thing that I was eating that was like animal based. And so I, I remember eating the last chicken breast that was in the freezer because we ain't throwing away no food. So <laughs> that, that last chicken breast and I didn't buy any more. And I was like, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to buy any more. And I remember I had a headache for like a week and I was like, what is this? And I felt like my body was like detoxing, like Mm -mm, you know it was some kind of struggle but after that yeah, I was still alive I, st I was still here um and it was okay um and it wasn't so much about I want to go vegan or vegetarian to lose weight it was just like why am I eating animals like the, again this life cycles you kind of start to think things and like well why do I eat animals um, what, what's the point of that? Do I have to? They're not, and they're fine. So let me try it. And I just stuck with it. Yeah. I'd love to go back and expound upon that question, Roz and Alana. Like, what are some of the advice you would give to someone who's encountering the same kind of toxic relationship with food right now? Do you ladies have anything that you would advise or that you went through and could share with our listeners who may be listening and going through that battle right now? Uh, my answer is short. I just say eat what makes you feel good. Because when we start to eat foods that make us feel bad or sleepy or whatever, it's not a good sign. So eat what makes you feel good. That's really my biggest thing. And whether you lose the weight or not from changing your diet, it's just what comes with it. But 
you just got to embrace being healthy over being a certain size. Absolutely. Yep. I agree. For me, it's all about lifestyle. So I used to speaking about the slim fast and all that, that was me in high school because when I was young, I was overweight. So they like the doctor legit put me on a diet. It was like, you can't eat cheese. I'm like, I'm in the second grade. What do you mean? I can't eat cheese. Like, <laughs> like you, you try, you trying to restrict the second grader, but I was just big for my age. So like I haven't grown since the fourth grade, but my weight has fluctuated. I literally, I was like, Legit, I was the same height as my mother. Like, we would walk down the street. They'd be like, oh, is this your sister? She's like, no, that is my child. <laughs> let's get it Let's get it correct. And um, so, you know, going to these doctors who don't understand the Black community and our body shapes and all of that, they're like, well, she's this, this. Granted, I was healthy. I was out there playing basketball, football, playing, roughing it up with the boys and all that. But they're like, she's. Basically, she's fat. She needs to lose weight. So, you know, in second grade, like I always had this battle. So, you know, those diets. And then I think my mother was just like, you know what? You're a child. We're just going to we're not going to put you on this type of restriction. You're just going to eat. We're just going to do moderation. But then as I've gotten older, though, it's just become part of a lifestyle. Like I played sports. So being active, things of that nature, whatever I like to eat, what I'm in the mood for, I eat it. But I know for me, I can't overindulge because I'll just keep eating it. So if I have a taste for it, I allow myself to have it. Then once it's out of the house, it's out of the house until I have a taste for it again. So I had to come to learn that for myself. But yeah, I understand the whole story about the Slim Fast. You know, I was in high school, they eating their cookies, their pizza. I'm like, I got my Slim Fast for today. You know, prom coming up. I gotta, gotta be bright. That prom day was so real. (laughs) You know, prom coming up. I can't be out here looking. The crazy thing when I was in high school, I thought I was big, but now like I wish I was that size again. (laughs) I did. I think for me, I have a different experience. I was definitely an emotional eater. So for me, therapy helps, right? Mm -hmm. Therapy and being cute. Like if I'm going to be the big girl, I'm going to be the cute ass big girl in the room. Like for me, it's like, I don't care how much weight you gain. You need to feel cute when you leave this Mm -hmm. house because it puts me personally in a position of like, and I still love me, curves and all. And now if I lose weight, it's because I want to lose weight. Not because I'm trying to fit in someone's size, whatever. It's because it's like my closet is fire right now for a big girl, okay? Um, so I have to, for me, that works. And like loving me all the way through, big, small, medium, the fluctuating weight, that's my issue. Um, and so for me, it's more of therapy and I have to love me all the way through. And it's terrible, but part of that shallowness helps me like, I love my little curves because I started to love, like, I got more hips now, and it looked good in that type of skirt. <laughs> when I was skinny, I couldn't do that. So it's I had to find my own journey, and it may be different for everyone else, but that is definitely part of it yeah. for me. A lot of people struggle a lot. A lot of women, Black women, struggle a lot with that body image conversation. I have friends that are like, I don't like my fupa. And I'm like, girl, my fupa is my best friend. It's here. Okay. Uh, it's here. It's not going nowhere unless I choose to make it go somewhere. But as you said, like the closet, I don't know if you, <laughs> the closet is popping, right? Okay. And people are always like, oh my gosh, 
can you teach me how to dress, you know, help me figure out how to pick out my clothes. And for me, that's become something that I love to do is to help people with their fashion. And it's like, you can adorn your body um, and you can dress in a way that make you make yourself feel better, feel confident. It has nothing to do with trying to lose weight. You know, I have to help people like you don't have to hide, baby. We know it's there. We know to get we right. you trying to put all this fabric around it. We still can see it. Why are you dressing this way? Like you don't have to right. do this. But sometimes we've been taught so much that we have to hide. And I remember having being that way too, thinking we have to buy bigger clothes and hide behind or black. Yeah. I love print on my face. I got so much fabric <laughs> and colors and print and and all kind of stuff in mm-hmm. here. And it's like you don't have to do that first and foremost because we we know you fat, right? <laughs> I can see it. Oh, yeah, I can tell. <laughs> so why don't you just dress in a way that makes you happy? And you know, and I even hate the word flatters because flatter, like, what does that mean? Just dress in a way that makes you happy. It makes you feel good. Kind of going back to the conversation about food, eating the way that makes you feel good. Now, if you feel sick because you didn't ate up all the chicken, maybe you should eat up all the chicken. Don't eat. Don't do that no more. But there are things that we can do to kind of elevate ourselves outside of falling into this whole diet culture, which is, once again, based in white supremacy, right? All this stuff comes yeah. from white folk telling us that we're not good enough. I'm, I'm good. No, never mind. Right. And that makes me think about, like, being intentional about who you surround yourself with. So in your book, you said, like, women need to stop isolating in the shame of their condition and place themselves where they can be supported and encouraged. That is so huge you have to be intentional about who's in your circle so who would you say was that for you like did you have some peers or some friends I have been blessed to have had really positive relationships with specifically black women and actually some other non-black women um, in my life I would say specifically professionally those two black women in my office at that time there was a a follow-up supervisor I had a black physician very positive role model and for the last 10 years, I've had, I have a group of five friends and we have a name. We got t-shirts. We got a logo. Um, yeah. We're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> we're the fabulous sister friends of South LA. These women are smart. I think two of them are have their doctorates. And then when I get mine, I'll be the third. Two of them are married. Some of them run community-based organizations and are executives. And these are women that, you know, something ain't right with me or with them. We know we can reach out to each other. There was a time when I was like, I don't know what I want to do professionally. I'm not sure. They were like, okay, we coming over for breakfast, had chart paper. They were like, all right, uh, we going to map this out. Like literally, you know, did the thing that black people, you know, that's how we do it, right? We going to map this out. All right, this is what you need to do. And gave me a, a, a process. And we've done that for other sister friends in the group so really strong connections um one of them right now i'm helping she got a new a, a great promotion i'm like okay girl we finna get your clothes together and, and one of the other friends is helping her too we trying to get her you know yeah. together so it's just it's been amazing we've been to two weddings you know all this great stuff so um really really strong source of support Rosalana, would you all say you have sister friends that help you through too y'all definitely I think my friends too are more like family for me especially since I've lived away from home for so long like you need I don't know how I would have survived my 20s without sister friends because they are confusing <laughs> um, even the 30s are confusing but definitely my 20s I needed my sister friends for sure 
Um, okay. I'm excited to talk about this. I need to know about how and why you decided to tell people you were pregnant the way you did. I was cracking up reading that in the book. For the listeners who have not heard, please tell them how you told the baby daddy you were pregnant and how you told your family. So baby daddy got the call right at the after I got the positive result. I was at school. I was uh, in college at the student health center. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on. I haven't had a period. I was really bad with tracking periods anyway. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. Um, I feel sick. And then she, the doctor was like, well, I don't know. We're going to see. <laughs> and so she did a vaginal exam. She said, I think something. Yeah, I feel like there's something in there. So let's get the pregnancy test done. And they did the blood test. Um, and they're like, yeah, you, you pregnant. You probably about 10 weeks. Cause we tried to figure out when my last period was. So I just walked outside. Got on the back in the day, we didn't have like cell phones like that. So we, I got on the payphone right outside of the student health center. And I'm like, "Hey, daddy!" And he was like, what? <laughs> "You know, freaked out." And I'm like, "Yep, that's it. It is what it is." Um, but I couldn't. I knew that the person that was going to really be the hardest to tell was my mom. First of all, because she didn't like my boyfriend anyway. She didn't like him at all. Um, so come on now. <laughs> Mama's be knowing. Yes. And so I was like, oh, she gonna kill me. You know, I literally was like, she is going to kill me. So my decision was if I tell her in public, she can't kill me in public, you know. So let me just, you know, do this thing. So I was still living at home, you know. I went to USC and USC is not far from my house, and plus ain't nobody got no money for no why would I live pay to live on campus when I live down the street? That's like stupid. So I was still living at home. And um, so we still did our, you know, grocery shopping together and everything. And we went to the grocery store, a Ralph's. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that Ralph's is still open, though. Um, so anyway, um, I remember we get in there and I walk over to, I leave her. She's in like the produce section. Um, I don't know, picking up something. I don't know. And so I said, okay, this, this is the moment. So I walk away and go to the vitamin aisle, pick up a bottle of prenatal vitamins, walk back over, and I just lay the vitamins in the cart. I just, just drop them in the cart. And she was like, why do you need those? You know, she kind of looked, and then she kind of looked at me. She said, why do you need those? And then I'm like, oh, I'm <laughs> Thinking like, you know, she about to snatch me or something. And she literally was like, don't cry it's okay and i was like is this the same mama <laughs> grew up with like who was this woman she knew before you told her i don't know you know I, I don't know i think that for her as much as she didn't like him she was probably more excited about a baby you know mm -hmm. in the family like there were no babies like our family is actually relatively small um on my mother's side and I think the excitement of a baby was actually more, you know, a thing for her than, you know, oh, Lord, this man, you know, when he wasn't a man, he was still, yeah. you know, a child too. But um, it was rough, though. But that moment was really crazy because I was just waiting to get yelled at. <laughs> I was like. <laughs> nothing? You got nothing for me? How do you feel like you survived that? Because you were still young. I mean, you made it through high school. But you were still young. What was it that helped you kind of still graduate? You went through, you graduated. All kudos to you. What was your support system like? So I attribute a lot of it to being young and dumb. 
um, you know, we, we tell young people, y'all don't know nothing. You haven't lived long enough, you know, shut up. You don't know anything. But I also think that being young in, in many cases gives you this sort of, and maybe it's unrealistic, but you don't realize the, 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 the extent to what certain situations are. You don't understand the depth of certain things. And in some cases that actually is good because if you stop and think that hard about it, you will talk yourself out of some stuff. And I think right. that if, if this had happened to me right now at 43, I'd be like, no, 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 I can't do it because I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to do that. And then I would have talked myself out of it. But as a teen mm-hmm. mom, I'm like, well, you know, I'm just going to have her in May and I'll, it'll be summertime. So that's fine. I'll spend the summer with her and then going back to school in the fall. <laughs> it'll be fine. No problem. And it didn't work out that way. But again, just that idea of like, well, what? I mean. <laughs> It's not like, I, you know, somebody did this to me. I did it to myself. Like, I mean, duh, what's the problem? And I just kept going. I just literally put one foot in front of the other. But I will say my mom and my dad um, really were the support system because my mom was like, just go to school, leave the baby here, do what you got to do. Um, right. And I didn't have to pay for child care um, until she got older, a little older. You know, that stuff is expensive and nobody, I had no, no real, no real job. So, you know, that, that was really helpful. Cause uh, again, if my daughter came in at 17 and said, mom, I'm pregnant, you know, my reaction would be different <laughs> than my mom's <laughs> and then I can't help her. I, she can't, oh baby, drop your, leave her here and go to school. I'm working. I'm working towards yeah. retirement. I can't, my mom was at home. So it was just, it just really worked out for me. I lucked out. Um, yeah. Tremendously. I, and I think one of the things that you said that resonates is that you're naive, but you're willing to take the risk because you just, you're not overthinking. I'm 31 and still be overthinking like, Ooh, I can't have a baby this year. It's going to have to wait. <laughs> and that's so true. We, we don't like, I think when I was young, I was afraid because of my parents' reaction. I was never saying oh, I'm afraid because childcare is expensive. It was just like, oh God, I don't want to tell my family I'd be pregnant. Like <laughs> that is so um, true. I think something else that stood out for me was when your baby came early, she came in like March, right? Yes. So she came early and the doctor says to you, take a break. <laughs> and you're like, nope, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Talk to us about that experience. Well, it wasn't the doctor. It was one of the advisors yeah. at college. It was one of the it was the Ooh. one of the college. You know how you have to go see your advisor and whatever and make sure your classes are on schedule, whatever. And it was white man. I remember that much. And I think I was either telling him either I don't remember if I was pregnant and telling him I was gonna need support or if she was already here and I was gonna need support. And and he was like, you know, you could just take a leave of absence. And I was like, why this white man telling me to take a leave of absence when I know that me graduating is the ticket for me to be able to take care of my kid? Like, this don't make no sense. Because, again, I don't know. I didn't know what social determinants of health were. I didn't know, you know, the, the relationship between educational attainment and health outcomes. I didn't know any of that then. But I knew that. I needed to stay in school, get out of school so that I could get a job that could help me take care of my new family. And so I just thought that was like the dumbest idea ever. Like, why would I leave school 
you know, I, I just knew my chances to graduate would be, it would be harder for me to try to pick back up to graduate at that point. So I was like, this dude crazy. I was like, I'm not doing that. And again, young and dumb, like, I ain't, what? He's older and he's, you know, he's an academic advisor. I'm like, man, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing that. And I think that's also a lesson that sometimes people that know more than you don't know more than you. They don't know you. Okay. And it's like, that's not what I'm doing. <laughs> I need you to give yeah. me some resources um, or tell me, direct me somewhere to help me figure some stuff out. I didn't, I didn't ask for you to talk to, tell me about uh, taking a leave of absence. That's not, that's not what I said. Yeah. And that sheds light on too people of color being in these positions of power to help because if it was a person of color that might not have been their very first suggestion to you because they would have a similar mindset of we got to get her through this knowing that that's going to be her ticket and her family's her baby's ticket out too. Yep. Um, it makes me think like you're in another situation where that duality exists because you also talk about the burden of doing college and no one in your family had experienced that. So they're trying to get you through. They're trying to be your support system, but there's but so much advice they could give you having never experienced it themselves. Um, talk to us about that experience. Yeah, that was, that was crazy. Um, I think my parents were like, look, we got you in there. We got you, know, we got you through, through the gate. Like we, we can't help you. And so I was very confused undergrad. Um, I had applied to USC as a, a biomedical engineer. To this day, I don't know what a biomedical engineer. I have no idea what they do. <laughs> but it sounded good. I was like, I'm going to do this. And I got in. And then I'm like, I don't want to do this. And so I'm like, okay, maybe I'll be a pharmacist. Okay, maybe I'll be a nurse. And I probably should have stuck with nursing. But that's a whole, like, because nurses be balling and stuff. They they make good Sex. money. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but then I just kept like, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing here. You know, I'm at this predominantly white institution. Um, I feel like I don't belong. That whole imposter syndrome, like, what what am I doing here? And I have no one to really help me navigate. There's no one in my family that can say, girl, don't even worry about declaring a degree. Go just take your, you know, general requirements and then we'll figure it out. There's nobody to tell me that. I'm taking biology and chemistry in the same semester. And everybody's like, what are you doing? I, I don't know. <laughs> right. Sounded good. Right. <laughs> failed. I think I failed. Bi- I got a D in biology. And then something happened with chemistry. It was a mess. A mess. Yeah. And I'm pregnant. Right. So I'm like, I don't right. know what I'm doing. I'm over here just, just messing up. I don't know. Um, yeah. But thankfully, the school had a, a good, like a black student union and all the pro- programs for black students. And there was a woman that kind of helped guide me. She said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to open a health clinic um, in my in my neighborhood. You don't have to be a clinician to do that. Why don't you focus yeah. on public admin? Oh, and that's, yeah. that's where it all went. Yeah. Rosalana, can you all kind of relate to that experience at all? Now, I know, like I said, both my parents went to college, so it was like they... Bonjour. I'm thankful for their experience because it definitely helped helped me because they were essentially grooming me to go to college. Like, it was never a doubt in my mind that college was not an option. It was just a matter of, okay, where are you going to go? How are we going to pay for it? Like, what are you going to do when you get there? And so I, I just knew I was going to go to college. Now my plans definitely changed <laughs> a lot while I was there. But um, I, I had a lot of support in the sense that my, my parents had both been to college. 
Um, they kind of knew that process. Of course, it was different, you know, 20 years later, but <laughs> I had I had that support of people who had been there. And then my mom has friends who, my mom has her master's degree as well. So she also has friends who are then, you know, have that graduate uh, experience as well. And so it just, it was never a question. I didn't really have that experience of not being sure. Uh, my mother, she uh, is a college graduate. My stepdad, he just went into the workforce after high school. I don't think it was ever like harped on. I think I've always wanted to go to, like, I just knew after high school was either going to be the army or college. So I, I actually wanted to apply to the Navy, but I can't swim. And I was nervous. I was scared. <laughs> I looked at the requirements in the test. I said, I'm not going to make it. <laughs> so <laughs> let me just go ahead and apply to these schools. Um <laughs> Because what really, to be honest, what appealed to me about the Army was the the, the travel, like because the Navy, how they got to experience different cultures and stuff. And my two uncles were in the force and they were just talking to me about it. And I said, oh, this could possibly be an, be an option. Then I understood, too, that I can always I can also get an education there. And I was like, oh, I get to experience life, you know, represent the country and get an education. I said, this could be it but like I said I saw the requirements and I went the, a like different route <laughs> I was just nervous and I was asking my family they was like it's like it's not that bad it's like you just gotta jump down and you float back up I said but it's 12 feet I don't know how to swim I was like you put two and two together that's not gonna work out but I'm glad they believed in me so but but anyway, you know, I just uh, ended up going to, to college and a PWI as well. And that was different coming from um, in the Midwest, coming from New Jersey, the East Coast. So it was a different type of culture shock. You know, parents are there they're like, oh, we're happy for you. You know, first year seminar, get dropped off. They left, met with my seminar, I cried. And I'm not even emotional. I said, what did I do? <laughs> Like I bawled. They wanted to embrace me. I said, no, don't, don't hug me. I don't need that right now. I was like, I just got to get it out because I was like, this is going to be my life for the next four years. So I need to embrace it and get comfortable with it. But, um, it was like, we all met in college. So I'm, I'm a little older than, I think one year older than y'all, but mm -hmm. the way we met and how we, I'm two years. For Alana, oh. not for me. You're one year for me. Okay. Okay. I'm about to say, I know I'm old, <laughs> um, but just how we met in the orgs that were available to us in that environment, for me, really helped. Like, we had gospel choir, we had, um, uh, what was it, DC, basically like church, then we had uh, AAAS, and I was an athletic training major, so I still had sports and, you know, the yeah, athletes, AKA. I could relate to them. Oh yeah, uh, Pledge of Sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. So I had that, that that group too. So I mean, it was I had to create an environment for me to some extent because an only child going away by myself, it was easy for me to be alone because that was comfortable for mm -hmm. me. But I knew I wasn't going to make it if I stayed that way. 
So, um, so you had to let us love you. <laughs> well, it took a minute. It still took a minute because I really, we really didn't get close till after we graduated. Cause I knew, I knew y'all, but I still had, I was like, I'm just here to get you spent out. almost every day your senior year with me. What do you mean? <laughs> My senior year? Julian. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is how she is. That was like <laughs> ten years ago, eleven years ago. She doesn't even remember being friends with us. She doesn't remember. <laughs> there was just so much going on. I was trying to pass senior seminar. That was a that yes, was a year. It was. That was a year. I, Nicole. I think I'm the only one with you. No one went to college. My dad did. I lied. So my dad had passed away by the time I left. So we chose college. I remember telling my mom like, just choose. I didn't think about my like packages, my scholarships. She chose our college because it was the prettiest one. <laughs> she was just like, it's so pretty here. You should go there. Oh, man. Um, so I definitely had better financial aid packages. Like I had a couple legit full scholarship rides and like grants that would have put money in my pocket. Did I choose those? No, they weren't even like top options. Um, so yeah, I, it was a learning curve for me personally because no one in my family who was alive at the time could help me figure it out. And then coming from Harlem to Greencastle, Indiana, and I learned like racism is very much so still alive. Um, <laughs> it was just, it was definitely a learning curve. Like Roz was mentioning, I think one, I teamed up with all the New Yorkers. Thank God there was a scholarship for them. So I think me being dropped off, I was fine because I met people like from Brooklyn and Harlem immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found my little bubble, but I definitely think the extracurricular activities helped me navigate all four years and just learning. I always made friends with the older people, so learning from the seniors. My freshman year, all my friends were seniors and graduated, and I was just like, damn, gotta start well, over again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I can definitely um, relate to that for sure um did you all have any questions for nicole that i haven't asked thus far i'm I'm really curious about like where you are now so one of the questions i was going to ask but you kind of answered it already was about you being back in school now i saw it on your ig yesterday you were like did y'all know i'm in school and i was (laughs) like wait i can't wait to talk to her tomorrow So you are you going back for the PhD that you said you have been thinking about? Yes. So um, I'm a weirdo. I'm a triple Trojan. I have my undergrad degree from USC. I have my master's degree from USC, and I'm getting my doctorate in education from USC. I don't know. I don't. I don't know what that is. Um, I have this weird, you know, love hate relationship with the University of Southern California. Um, and actually, I had actually tried to look elsewhere for this doctorate. Um, and I had talked to someone, I think at a college in um, further east of, of L.A. County. And I said, is it online? She said, no, it's in person. I'm like, well, I ain't driving out there. She said, well, you should just probably look at USC. And I'm like, but that's what I was trying to get away from. So I just <laughs> went right back on at USC. Their degree is, this particular degree is online. Um, and it's a, a education doctorate, but it's uh, focused on organizational change and leadership. So really like looking at systems. 
you know, the stuff I do in public health anyway, right? Look at systems and like, how do we create change? How do we come in as true leaders? They're teaching us how to be innovative. Stuff that I'm not comfortable with. I'm like, I'm just used to, you tell me what to do and I'm going to use my mm-hmm. skill set. I'm going to get it done. But now it's like, you got to learn how to ask questions. You got to learn how to look at things differently. And I'm like, ooh, this is a little rough. <laughs> yeah. But it's exciting. But I feel like that's what public health is though because I, I'm trying to phrase it like I, asked myself into what public health was, if that makes any sense. Because I had a job at here where I live where it could be considered a public health hospital. And I was just the med tech working in a urology clinic out out of college. Had no idea what I was doing, but they had me in there drawing blood, taking out catheters, prepping people for vasectomies, all of that. So, um, but what I saw was, because I keep hearing you asking questions, because I kept asking questions. I was like, why is this this? Why are certain people getting treated like this? Why do we have to wait for some people to get them service? They're over here in pain. Why can't we just get them help? And I started asking all these questions to myself and then to coworkers. And they're like, well, this person has this type of insurance. They're on this type of insurance. We got to wait for the year process. We need to wait for this, that, and the third. I'm like, they are in the hospital in pain. Why can't we do this? And so I just started delving and digging. And at that time, my mind was just so much on athletic training that that's all I knew. But come to realize that I was really grooming myself for public health all this time. And it's because it's all around us from the simple fact of please wash your hands after using the restroom is public health to we're in the midst of a pandemic. Wear a mask. So it was really just asking those questions and I, and I keep hearing you asking yourself questions and I think that's really what gets us to where we're going to end up being and being that one niche in this big old puzzle in order to help fix what we see as a problem because usually when we see a problem you have a solution for it that's where your drive is going to take you to so that's just because I'm all, I'm still asking questions myself I'm like okay do I want to go to medical school or do I want to get my DRPH I'm like I don't know but Whatever whatever goes my way or whatever God sees fit, that's going to happen. But I feel you on that because it's like, ah, what's driving me? What questions? Where, where is it going to lead? But just got to hone in on it. But Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, I got into public health because, um, again, I was a new mom and I, I needed a job. And so at one point I was working on campus, scooping up ice cream and stuff. But I was like, I, I got to we got to do something. We can't do that no more. And so I applied to a job and I got um, a student professional worker job at the local health department in the sexually transmitted disease program. So I'm working with all these condoms and all I'm learning. I mean, I know even to this day, anything about an STD, I, I know, or I can figure it out, get the information to you. But I was working with a group of health educators and I'm like, this is so cool. I think I want to do this. And that's when I decided to go back to get the MPH. There was a woman, again, a black woman. See, these black women in these in these positions really can help guide you. She was an epidemiologist and she actually still works at the health department. Like I, I still talk to her. Um, and she told me, go get your master's degree. You will double your salary. And I'm like, uh-huh, I don't want to go back. It's going to be two years. Uh-huh. Two years is going to pass anyway. You might as well go back to school. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> so I went back and she was right. Um, and I actually reached out to her again. Hey, I think I'm finally ready to get my doctorate degree. Do it. 
don't give them any reason to discount you. And if you got the doctorate, they cannot. So go. And I'm like, okay. And so, you know, again, you listen to the, the elders when they talk um, because they know what they're talking about. And I'm just grateful that in those certain, you know, decision, you know, making parts of my life that there are people that are like, uh, yeah, go do it um, and help guide yeah. me. So yeah, it's been amazing. Well, all of you are interested. Just one more quick question. Oh. Go ahead. I was just going to give you all a compliment for all going to get your doctorates and degrees and whatnot right now. I am not in that club, but all power to you. <laughs> one, day, your way it. one day. One well, day. Maybe. We're going to see. Somebody got to pay for it. I ain't paying for that out of That pocket. was me. That was me. I'm like, I ain't paying for this, but I'm, I'm paying for it. <laughs> all power to you. Go ahead, Rise, with your question. <laughs> Oh, I was just, uh, I know you mentioned early in the book about how that presentation you sat on, um, that really, um, it was like you were at work, you sort of went into it, you was like, okay, I, I probably going to know what they're going to be talking about, they're going to show us the numbers, and then I also saw you had a TED talk about that, seeing the faces, so are you still seeing the faces in your realm, or have you or do you see both? You still see the numbers and the data and all that, and you can still associate to the faces? Or are you just seeing the faces and like, these are the people I want to represent. They look like me. I want to make sure they they have better. So um, that scenario was a catalyst for a lot of things. I think primarily me writing this book in the first place. And so, yeah, I'm in this race equity training at work. It's, you know, they're trying to get, you know, we're a social justice institution, right? Public health is about social justice. Everyone has the right to live a healthy life and we need to create a society where that is possible. Boom, right? That's the premise of the whole thing. And so we have to talk about racism. We have to talk about white supremacy. We have to talk about these things. So we're in this training and they put this slide up and it's, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is how, you know, I mean, it is what it is. Blacks fail in every single system in society. And it's like education, you know, our reading levels, we're low. We're overrepresented in homelessness. We're overrepresented in incarceration. We're underrepresented in home ownership. It's all this stuff. And I'm like, what the hell? You know, um, and the numbers weren't new. The data isn't new to me. I work in public health. I, I know these numbers, but for some reason I felt it. I felt it differently. I'm sitting next to my colleague and we give each other the black people look like, like for real. Um, but I think what it did, as you just, you know, paraphrased, is like I literally saw the people. Like I'm looking at the numbers, but for me, I'm looking at numbers, but I'm also seeing the people. You're like, you're talking. First of all, you're talking about me. This slide is talking about me and the people in my neighborhood. And so I think for me, the way that I live my life, I public health is not just a job for me. Social justice is not just a thing that I that sounds good. Like I literally live it. Like it it's in me. And so I think I don't think I could ever go out and not see the people. Like every time something happens at work or we're trying to decide on doing a thing, I'm trying to figure out, well, are we really, is this really gonna help? the people that we're supposed to be helping, you know, these conversations about race and racism, and even just making sure that our workforce feels supported, people of color in the workforce feel supported are things that are really important to me, because how can we serve a diverse community like where I live of 10 million people that are over 100 languages are spoken, if the people in the institution are upholding white supremacy, we can't, how are we, how are we supposed to be fixing anything? Because if we're not, if we're not thinking about this, 
or trying to fix this, actually the entire institution is actually upholding the very thing that we say that we're trying to fix. And then it's like, we just over here spinning our wheels. We just, what are we, what are we working for? So I don't think I will ever stop seeing those faces. Like, because of my lived experience. Like I'm, I live in South Central LA. I still live here. So it's like, what are we doing to make this better? So I know I said a whole bunch, <laughs> but that's just kind of. No, I agree. Cause I see different faces. Cause, cause I only know, like I said, from my experience, but being in the Midwest, I didn't realize I was like, Oh, they're poor too. Like that was a, uh, that was different for me because all I saw was the representation of like, Oh, it's the blacks, it's the browns, it's the Mexicans, it's them. They they're not educated. They're poor. I'm like, oh wow, I'm really helping other people. I'm helping people that look like me, but sometimes I'm helping more people that don't. And so when I moved here and got into that field, I was like, wow, like okay. And you know the interesting the interesting thing about what you just said is the people that you're talking about that are also poor. Uh, they're the ones that so will push back against us because they, as long as they're not black, mm-hmm. and it's like you voting against your own interest because you don't want to associate yeah. and align yourselves with the with the rest of us, black and other people of color that are trying to do better. Because you, no, I'm not one of them. As long as you're not black, exactly. they're like I'm. I'm still above you, and that's the crazy thing. It's like y'all need to be aligned with us because you poor too. You ain't got nothing. <laughs> need the same resources we do what i want to know what's next so we know you will be dr vic soon yeah what's next in your journey once you are dr vic or what are you working on right now so i just published a guided journal um in october it's called push through i'm like well we just gonna we just gonna stay consistent it's called push through uh 52 weeks of light in tough times and it's really kind of grounded in, you know, all, everything that happened over the last two years, the pandemic, the George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, all that stuff. I'm like, you know what? Our world is crazy. And journaling has been a way for me to kind of write out the world that I want to see. And so I put together 52 quotes that have impacted my life along with writing prompts so that people can, again, be, begin to write out some of the things that they want to think about or do, right? So that's one thing that's happened. I also have a love of nail polish, okay? I don't know what it is, but every week I polish my nails. I'm going to do them uh, today as a form of self-care. It is an hour or so, depending on how, you know, intricate I decide I want to go, where I can just focus. I'm not thinking about nothing else. I can't move because the polish is wet. I got to sit still. And I'm creative on these 10 tiny canvases. And so I've been really pushing this idea of nail care and self-care. I created a gift box. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, my throat is just like, mm. You get that water. <laughs> <laughs> so I've created a gift box of nail polish and all the little things that you'll need to get started on your self-care journey with nail care. And in that, I created a cool little booklet of fashion advice because I'm a fashionista how to set up your nail care station. And then of course I got to put the activism and the social justice in there. So there's some little tips in there too about like how you can create change. And so I've been selling that for, for a holiday kind of gift box, but of course nail Mm -hmm. polish doesn't expire. So, I mean, I'll still have them available after. 
Um, and I don't know. Other than that, I mean, it's an, I think that's enough because I got too. I, I be doing too much. Yeah, you got a lot on your plate. <laughs> I love that. Well, congratulations on the the journal. I'm gonna have to check that out. I might need to invest in the nail kit for Alana because she does her own nails. Dude. That might be your Christmas gift. Please. <laughs> I, I was on one of your lives one day when you were going through the box and stuff, and one of my favorite things was that you had all these black owned polishes as well. And so I was yeah. just like so here for it. So yes, that was my goal to get myself a kit for Christmas. But if Monique was gonna do it for me, I I would. I sure would. I sure will. You let me know where to order it, Nicole, because I only need to order one and send it to her. Speaking of the makeup, real quick, even though uh, the people you talk about in your book aren't characters, they're real people. So how, what nail polish would you give them, or how would you style them since you're in the fashion and all of that? Hey. So, you know, I've been so lucky. There are um, a whole bunch of black um, nail polish brands. I actually started to count them, and I think I found 20-something. There are probably more. Um, but there's one that's local here in Los Angeles uh, run by a teenager. She actually just uh, graduated from high school, and I love her brand. So I probably would, you know, she has all the beautiful sparkly colors and stuff. And I feel like sparkly nail polish, um, you know, if, you, if you're not happy when you got sparkly nail polish on, we got got to figure out what's what's going on uh, i would probably get somebody you know get that for them um it's called the company is called shy's world shop i can send that to you all would love to do that um and you know i'm looking i'm sitting in my closet just side <laughs> side story because it's the only quiet spot in my house so i'm looking around at all my clothes i love supporting black owned um fashion folks i have friends that make clothes i have one her name is neva neva marie um and she makes beautiful dresses and kimonos and i think for me i would just literally pull from all my friends and i love all of them that really are creative um and actually you know what that question leads into other things that i've done like i've done pop-up shops um in my backyard with black women business owners neva has been here the girl the shines world shop has been here i have a girl that makes the bomb head wraps her name is uh natalie knits by nat i mean it's like all these relationships i've developed with um business owners really trying to you know create and support um create an environment of support for them and again that's a public health social justice thing all of the stuff that i do is all related to public health and social justice like when you spend money with these businesses that those dollars recycle in the community they don't leave the neighborhood if you go shop at target and we i love target but when you shop at Target, those dollars don't stay. They don't stay here. Um, so buy from them. Shop local, so those those dollars can still stay in the community longer. So, um, yeah. I love it, and I'm also gonna have to check out Knits by Nat because I love a good head wrap. So she does. I might need that information from you as well. Um, well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. We're so happy that you joined us, and I'm so glad we were able to read this book. If you haven't, please check out Pushing Through, Finding the Light in Every Lesson. You can find it on Amazon and at your bookstores. Um, it's not on Audible yet. Maybe we'll be. Maybe. You know, speak life over it. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and check out that journal. Get you a nail, cli- a nail kit. Do it all, y'all. Support Miss Nicole, future Dr. Vic. Um, we love it and we so appreciate you for joining us. And to our listeners, we are reading Royal Holiday next by the lovely Jasmine Guillory. I'm so excited to dive mm-hmm. into 
that book. And if you are on a journey with us for our own little self-help journey, Believing Bigger, what day are we on today, Alana? Uh, this is 61. It's day 61. 61 days in. Yes. Yes, and we're definitely going to unpack that book in January. So if you haven't read it, catch up, listen to it. It's a life-changing book for sure. And thank you, Nicole, for joining us again. Come back anytime. Let me know. I'll be ready. I'm ready. (laughs) See y'all later. Be safe.